Well, this morning we're continuing this series, Seeking Advent. And again, our theme for the third Sunday of Advent is the theme of joy. And the title of our sermon this morning is Seeking Joy in the Sorrow. Seeking Joy in the Sorrow. As I mentioned, we are watching on the outside hallway, just outside of the sanctuary, we're watching this Advent art wall take shape. Many of you have already shared your favorite Christmas decoration from your house, and I hope that those of you who haven't done it yet will take a picture, send it to EK. We would love to fill that wall up even more. Some of you have shared the stories with us about why these decorations are your favorite. We've heard about um, Christmas sweaters. We've seen nativity scenes that come all the way from Bethlehem. We see some of your favorite ornaments, even the ones that have terriers on them. <laughs> We've gotten to hear about why these decorations are meaningful to you, what they represent for you. And I want to share with you a story that I came across a few years ago. It's written by a Disciples of Christ minister, and I really wish, and I almost considered sharing the story in full with you, reading the whole thing. It comes from a post by the Reverend Sarah Nave Fisher. But we didn't quite have enough time for me to share the whole piece with you. So I'm going to share a little bit of what she's written and also just tell a little bit of her story. But it has to do with a Christmas decoration. So this is a story from the Reverend Sarah Nave Fisher. She begins her story by saying that she and her husband met something like 20 years ago now. And they met in a setting that was almost like a Hallmark movie, like a Christmas Hallmark movie. Now, just by a show of hands, how many of you have watched at least one Hallmark Christmas movie this year? Look at that. How many of you watched two or more, three or more, four or more, five or more? We could keep going, friends. We could keep going. So you can imagine the setting of how she and the gentleman who became her husband met. It was on a Christmas Eve. She says it was snowing. Her soon-to-be husband was dressed in his Class A military uniform. So you can see the Hallmark scene um, setting up. They talked all through Christmas evening into the dawn of Christmas. And she said after that meeting, they fell in love that night, that she went out and bought a Christmas ornament on her own. And she bought a Christmas ornament because she wanted to remember and commemorate, celebrate that moment. And they're falling in love on Christmas Eve. They ended up getting married. And each year they would buy a new Christmas ornament to kind of represent what that year meant to them. This became a tradition for their family where they would buy these Christmas ornaments each year. And then as they were hanging the ornaments, they would retell the story of each year of their marriage together. And they had children and they would tell the children the stories of their marriage. They would tell the children the stories of giving birth to their children and celebrating their family together. Well, Reverend Fisher says that one year their family had a very hard year. It was a very hard year all around, both personally and professionally, she writes. 
In fact, it was such a hard year that she couldn't buy an ornament. She just couldn't do it. She couldn't find an ornament or make herself go out and get something to commemorate the year because the year was just that hard for them. But then she tells that she went to Target to buy some other things and to prepare for Christmas. And while she was in Target, she went to the Christmas section. And she was looking through the Christmas section. And at this point, it was late in the season. Almost all of the ornaments were already taken and purchased. But she came across an ornament, and it was a giant bird. She writes that it was way bigger than anything that she had purchased before. She said it was a colorful bird, this giant ornament. And this comes from her now. This is what she wrote. It was oversized and brightly colored, very different from the delicate gold-trimmed ornaments we usually chose. It was crushed from having been pushed repeatedly to the bottom of the bin, and it was missing a sewn-on eye, a bare thread in its place. The tail was coming unglued, and there was inexplicably some sort of plastic fish hook attached to its head, and it was 90% off. That bird cost 39 cents. She said she held it up to her husband and she said, this is it. This is our ornament for the year. This is the one that we need to represent this most difficult of years for our family. This bird that costs 39 cents and is missing an eye. And she says that bird became for them a marker of a difficult year. But she writes, that difficult year that didn't destroy them. And it was a way of them to be able, even in the midst of the joy of Christmas, even in the midst of the celebration of the Christmas season, to be able to acknowledge the hard things too, the sorrowful things as well. I want to share the ending of the story that she wrote, the post that she, she put up a few years ago. She writes this, I've learned over the years that having this brightly colored bird on our tree offers our family an opportunity to name that not everything is great, but God is faithful and there is pain. Both of those things are true. And neither one cancels out the other. Just because God is loving and faithful does not require us to pretend things are fine when they aren't or that grief and suffering don't exist. We don't have to look for the silver linings and we certainly don't have to put a big red bow on our suffering. As we decorated the tree this year, my family once again recounted the stories behind each ornament and we will all pause when we get to the bird we will pause remembering the things that didn't destroy us and the God who was there the whole time. Advent and Christmas are seasons of joyful celebration. We sing about joy in our Christmas carols and songs, 
The lights and the smells and the sounds make everything sometimes seem to be merry and bright. But the truth is, as Reverend Fisher has written, Christmas isn't always joyful. There are many this Christmas who are grieving the loss of a friend or family member. There are many who are lonely, far from family or maybe estranged from the ones they want to be the closest to. There are others so consumed by financial, emotional, or physical hardship that they won't be capable of mustering joy. At Christmas time, joy is always intermingled. And the book of Ezra tells us about intermingled joy. This is a remarkable story. The past two Sundays, as you might remember, the Israelites were being threatened by the Babylonian Empire and they were exiled to Babylon. But we also saw glimmers of hope each week, including last Sunday when Isaiah prophesied a return to Jerusalem. He talked about a highway through the desert from Babylon back to their home and to their holy city. And then this Sunday, with this passage, that's exactly what happens. The Persians defeated the Babylonians, and as Ezra tells us, the Spirit of the Lord stirs up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. And King Cyrus allows the people to return to Jerusalem. And not only will they be allowed to go back to their home, but they are given permission to rebuild the temple. The temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. In chapter 1 of Cyrus's decree, we hear that the people can return to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 3, we see the beginnings of their rebuilding. We see the beginnings of their construction of the new temple. As I read you this passage from chapter 3 of Ezra, I want you to imagine the people's joy. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Aspah, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. After all those years in exile in Babylon and then Persia, they are back home and the foundation of a new temple has begun. After all those years in a foreign place, a new altar has been put in place. After all those years, the priests are again dressed in their vestments. After all of those years, trumpets and cymbals and singing are again resounding in the holy city. In this passage, the people are praising God and they're using these traditional words of worship from hundreds of years before. The Lord is good. God's steadfast love endures forever. In Ezra chapter 3, we read about this celebration, this joyful celebration and returning and rebuilding. 
But I want, to, I want you to hear how the passage continues. And I want you to consider how the people's joy is intermingled. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. The people's praise is mixed with weeping. Their joy is intermingled with sorrow. For while some celebrated, others could not help but weep because they remembered what had been. They remembered the splendor and grandeur of Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed. Again, the passage says, many wept with a loud voice, though many also shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. I want to share with you what one professor has written about this passage. This comes from Rachel Wren, an Emory University professor, and she describes what's happening in the book of Ezra and its connection to the season of Advent. This was too good of a quote not to share with you. Ultimately, this is a story of redemption, but painful redemption, of return, but a return marked with grief, of rejoicing, but a joy that is inextricably linked to the losses that came before. It is a story of ambiguous joy. And are not our lives? For that matter is not the core of Advent itself. On this day we would do well to allow space. To honor the pain of what is lost. As we await the fulfillment of the Messiah. That pain is woven together with the joy of love that has been. And the hope of redemption to come. For most of us in this life, we exist never fully in one state or the other. The sounds of our joyful shouts can never be easily distinguished from the sounds of our weeping. Joy intermingled with sorrow. While you celebrate this Christmas season, your neighbor might be grieving. And while you're grieving, your neighbor might be celebrating. Sorrow and joy are not mutually exclusive. They can sit together. They can exist together. Even inside the same person. Even inside the same person at the same time. Even inside the same person at the same time on the same day. Joy intermingled with sorrow. If you are mourning this Christmas, don't be ashamed over the joy you may feel as well. And if you are filled with merriment this season, 
don't be surprised or ashamed if a wave of grief intermixes with the joy. For most of us, Rachel Wren writes, in this life we exist, exist never fully in one state or the other. The sounds of our joyful shouts can never be easily distinguished from the sounds of our weeping. Isn't this the reality of life? This is the reality of the Christmas story, of the Jesus story. Christ is born, his birth is celebrated by shepherds and angels and magi. But that joy is soon mixed with fear. As his family has to flee for a foreign land because of Herod's death threats. The Christmas story is a story of joy intermingled with danger. And that's the Christ story. Jesus is baptized, his God-given calling confirmed, but then it's immediately challenged in the wilderness. Jesus goes on to teach of God's grace to heal the sick and feed the hungry. All the while his teachings are condemned by authorities and his life is continually threatened. The Jesus story is a story of joy and good news intermingled with violence and oppression and sorrow. This is true to the very end of Christ's journey. The cross is God's ultimate expression of love. For us, the cross is a sign of joy. But of course, the cross is also a symbol of death and violence. We sing about it during the season of Lent. Consider the third stanza of the well-known song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This is what it says. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Joy intermingled with sorrow. It's the story from Ezra. It's the Christ story, the Christmas story. And it's our story too. For most of us in this life, we exist never fully in one state or the other. The sounds of our joyful shouts can never be easily distinguished from the sounds of our weeping. This Advent and Christmas season, we do well to remember that there are some for whom this season will be especially difficult. And we do well to remember that there may be some very real action we can take to mix joy in with their sorrow. And so if you are one who is grieving this season, may you, by the magic of the season, and by God's grace, also experience a taste of joy. A taste of joy in the singing of children, or the surprise of gift-giving, or maybe even in the sweetness and nostalgia of Christmas treats. May your sorrow be intermingled with joy. And for all of us, may this Advent season remind us that God is in the midst of both our joy and our sorrow. God is in the middle of our shouts of praise and also our weeping. Because that is the hope of Advent. 
And it's the good news of Christmas. God is in the middle of it all. God is mixed in with the good and the bad, the joyful and the horrible. God is in the midst of it all. In this season, we remember that in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who made his dwelling among us, God is intermingled in every circumstance, in every pain and every promise, in every joy and in every sorrow, in every season of the year and in every season of our lives, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, God intermingled, joy intermingled. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you for coming and joining us in our joy and celebrations and also in our struggles. You are not afraid to join us in good times and in bad. Through it all, you are Emmanuel, you are with us. As we celebrate this amazing good news this Christmas season, may we look to do the same for others. May we commit to standing by our neighbors through joy and through their sorrow, through easy days, and may we also stand in the middle of their bad days as well. Because God, that's what you do for us. And that's what you want us to do for others. We praise you, O holy God, for the gift of the Christ child, the promise of your love and presence in the midst of every season. And now as we continue to journey through Advent, We wait anxiously for his coming, because surely the light of Christmas is just over the horizon now. And so it's in Christ's name we pray, and we pray as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.